0: Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name is Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing incredibly well, Grant, and yourself?
0: Not too bad. Thanks for asking.
1: Well, I'm keen to get into our discussion today because it's really part of a little episode this year where there's been a lot of conversation around uh, plant-based meat and alternative proteins. We just recently had the Alt Proteins 2023 conference and we're recording this just at the start of South by Southwest where there are some um, sessions throughout the week that are looking at the future. Of our food systems and uh, so it brings us to our guests today who, when the plant-based meat products really sprung onto our retail shelves in the late sort of 20-teens and into the early 2020s, the discussion around our current food production system did start to get more airtime uh, but other aspects of that plant-based meat sector were overlooked or just not really given much airtime. But that wasn't uh, the case for our guests today, who quickly realised there was a major gap in this disruptive food sector that's coming through, and that was supplying locally made plant proteins to Australian food manufacturers who either wanted to scale their production or get on board. And the result was and is Harvest B., now, in January, it opened its first, and indeed the country's first, plant-based meat ingredients company. And today, we're joined by co-founders, Christy Riordan and Alfred Lowe. Welcome, you two. Thanks, Kim. It's great to be here. Hi, everyone. So tell me, uh, give the elevator pitch in terms of when Harvest B sort of launched. What was, you know, where did it start for you two?
2: Well, I think, you know, you touched on a few of these things in in your opening comments that there were some real fundamental problems we saw coming in the alternative protein space in that we, we saw a lot of excitement from brands like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods and V2 specifically here in Australia. But what we thought in the long run would take place is that we needed a more robust and efficient supply chain. To enable a wide variety of different brands as well as food service operators to be able to come up with cost efficient, great tasting nutritious proteins. And I think what has actually borne out over the last few years, especially the last 12 months is that this has actually come to to be the case where we've seen prices very high that have been difficult to, to bring down by some brands and other brands that might have affordability aren't necessarily meeting consumer expectations. So what we have focused on is really creating a better textural experience because we felt that it was too difficult to solve that downstream. But we've also really focused on product design as well as our technology selection to create really affordable proteins as well. And I think that's one of the things that has become crucially important as taste is really about table stakes. We now have to move on and think about cost. This is
1: something we hear about all the time, isn't it? That it's about taste, texture, price. And it really does seem to be that work in progress that we're still very much in that land of iterations of just getting the product better and better as, you know, as the products develop and the knowledge and understanding of how they work also matures.
2: There's so much work to be done in the space. And I think even just breaking down a little bit about what you're talking about. Taste that we have been focused on is the textural experience, trying to create a better mimic of animal proteins and the texture of, of the plant protein itself. But taste is also about the comprehensive experience for the consumer. And Griffith University recently came out with some research of trying to uh, analyze the market and really understand consumers. And they articulated that there's actually six different consumer segments across the market. So, when you think about taste, it's not just about texture. It's not just about flavor. It's also about understanding how are we serving a particular consumer segment, somebody who never wants to give up meat versus somebody who only wants to eat organic whole foods versus somebody who's really open and excited about plant-based meat. And then there's the cost factor as well. So there's a lot of work that has to be done. And I think the current macroeconomic environment with the inflation that we're facing Has made affordability really the leading issue if you start thinking about taste as table stakes, but we have to work on both of these things.
1: So, Alfred, what's been Harvest Bees approach then to the market? Like everyone's in this development stage. So how have you sort of come in and where are you, where are you sort of positioned in that landscape?
0: Well, when we started the business, we were really um we felt that at a core of what we do was to really understand. Proteins and how to turn them into really delightful and sophisticated textures uh, for for our customers. We we we've been a B two B ingredients business, as you know, and uh, trying to lift the bar for um, to make life easier for their product for our customers' products, so that they can achieve those textures that is so core to creating really uh, great food products for them. Had been. I guess, our, our mission. And I think we've been able to really achieve that through our, our initial range of products, particularly around our pieces and strip products, which not only have uh, what we think is a real uh, class-leading texture, but also have been quite a revolution in terms of how clean label they are.
1: Oh, okay. Because yes, of course of course clean label is another really sort of, you know, key aspect to the whole, you know, the whole sector, isn't it? Because there's a lot of other aspects sitting on top of plant based meat and even alternative proteins that are coming from there's also the ethical component of where they're coming from, but it's also the real feature of this is we have to feed the planet and how are we going to do that in a way that's sustainable so there's these other aspects that have to be addressed as well as as you were just saying in terms of getting that clean label is really important
0: nutrition so important but you know part of so what's in it how good is it for uh, our consumers uh, but also uh, there's been a lot of discussion about how how plant-based meat how it's been processed um, i think we're still at that first generation and It's really delightful to see real progress with how we are achieving clean label uh, closer to a whole whole food.
1: I think that was something I was really impressed with at Alt Proteins was there was a panel looking at nutrition and someone asked about the processing question and the ultra processing and where that all sits. And they were really honest and just sort of, you know, there were, um, and they said, "We, we just, we're still working it out. We don't think that plant-based proteins or plant-based meat needs to sit in the same category as say an ultra processed food, like a snack food, but then there's still a way to go. And that was sort of really refreshing.
2: I think there's a lot of misunderstandings in the market about what processed actually means. And what does health mean as well? So so it's, it's easy to try to simplify these kinds of topics, but in health, what's the protein level? What are the amino acids? What's the vitamins and minerals? And how does it compare to meat? And is it bioavailable? That's a whole conversation around health. Processed, I think, is something that most food that we eat is actually processed, unless you're eating carrot or broccoli, most of the food, including animal meat, is processed, and some animal meat is highly, highly processed. So, processed doesn't inherently mean bad, but I think when you get into ultra-processed and you dynamically change the nature of the food, you remove the nutritional components of it, that's bad. But also, when you add certain additives into the food product, that aren't necessarily what we wanna have in our diet. And I think we actually have a real opportunity in the plant protein space to have processed foods, but processed foods that don't have those additives that are clean label, they have ingredients on the list that we'd find in our pantry. And that's actually what we focus on in our technology. Yes, it's processed, but it's a very clean label and highly nutritious food. Yeah,
1: nutrition is becoming really rising to the fore here in terms of, yeah, this is actually, there's, a, there's higher stakes here. And particularly if we're looking at, 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 you know, making foods that are going to sustain populations all over the world. So tell us about the specifics of your actual product, because I remember when I first was talking to you that yours was actually an ambient product that was shelf stable and that that was not common at the time.
2: One of the things that we've really done with our product development is think a lot about how do we achieve texture and how do we also achieve affordability? That was always at the outset of Harvest Bee. So we've selected a product design and a product technology that is, I think, clever in the way that we are able to achieve both of those things. You're right. Our product is shelf-stable. We utilize Australian grains and we convert them into texturized proteins that are shelf stable for up to 18 to 24 months. This is an incredible idea if you think about remote areas like mining and defense or disaster recovery of having an ability to be able to access protein like that. As we got further and further into market, we even found people who were facing here in Australia, significant supply chain disruption in their chicken delivery, animal chicken, And they didn't have enough to actually meet government contracts in aged care and hospitals. So they're actually looking at supplementing our proteins that mimic some of that chicken protein so that they can actually meet the obligations that they have in their contracts. Because it's shelf-stable, we are able to move it through the supply chain, not only to get that longevity and have access and security to it over time, but we're not shipping around water. So you've got less volume of product that is shipped, and you've also got less cost in transportation because we don't have refrigeration. And in the technology design, the product design that we have, we've actually eliminated certain ingredients. So Alfred was talking a few moments ago about being clean label. We have no methyl cellulose in our proteins. We naturally weave the proteins together rather than using a binder to hold them together. But what's important about that is not just the health benefit, but it's a cost reduction because we don't have that secondary ingredient that we're paying for, and we don't have that secondary process either. So through a number of those elements of product design and technology selection, we've been able to focus on improving taste, texture, but also affordability.
1: What have have been some of the big challenges? (laughs) There's a a nice simple question for you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think the category right now is in a a classic period of crossing the chasm, which if you or your listeners are familiar with the innovation adoption curve, it looks a little bit like a bell curve. It starts small on the left side and then it goes up to a peak in the top. The left side is where you've got your early adopters, your innovators, and then the center of that bell curve, the peak, is your mainstream The challenge for an innovative category that is bringing novel concepts and novel products to market is that you have to cross from the consumers that are buying your products as early innovators and adopters into the mainstream, and they're very different buyers. So, What happens, whether you're talking about computers, phones, or the car, every kind of new technology goes through this period that's called crossing the chasm. And when you go from those early adopters, there's a big fall off. It's a, it's a pit. It's a chasm. And many people don't make it to the other side because what's required is to change the approach into market, to change the product that fits for the mainstream. That's what we're in right now. And that is hard, hard work for everyone who's involved in the category. It's not just here in Australia. It's in the United States. It's across Europe as well. So what does that mean? It means, what are these multiple consumer segments that we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago? Who are they? What kind of different formats do they need? What kind of different messages do they need? And how do we bring that price point down? while well, we keep the texture strong and we get the flavor right, whether it's going into an Asian segment or a Western segment, whether it's going into a strength-building muscle channel or whether it's going into an organic mom channel. These are very complicated questions and it's very hard work, but we need a lot of people who are working on this. And what's, I think, interesting about it is food's not a winner-take-all category, unlike you would see in traditional technology. What I just described means we need a lot of people working on coming up with unique culinary concepts that are reaching out to all those different consumer segments and getting them excited about how plant protein can be included on their plate. That's so
1: true, isn't it? Like there's not going to be, there's not an apple of food. Do you like that?
2: (laughs) I love it. Boom, bitch.
1: Look, you know, I'm not the editor for nothing. Um, Yeah, that's really appalling. But yeah, yeah. anyway, uh, but that's a really good point, you know, that you actually do need a lot of, you need a lot of players in this game. So what's the market like in Australia?
2: I think the market is its challenging, uh, probably even more so challenging than it is in the United States and in Europe, in part because Australia tends to be a bit more of a follower market than a leader market. Once trends are established in the United States and in Europe, they tend to come here into Australia. So, when you look at when plant-based meat came to Australia, it's after it had already been established in Europe and the United States. So, these trends and these these transformations are actually actively being worked through in those markets. And so, Australia is a little bit it's at a little bit of a standstill. That, in addition to the fact that everything got upside down during COVID, typically in food. New trends go into food service, and then once they're established and and you can recognize the pattern of what works, you move it into retail. But what happened in COVID? That went upside down because food service wasn't happening, and companies needed to drive revenue. So we pushed trends into retail. And a lot of those trends weren't necessarily the right thing. So it confused the retailers, it confused the consumer, and food service was a bit behind. So that whole mechanism is actually transforming right now as well, where we see a contraction from retail and we see a push into food service that we're going to need to give some time to reestablish what the interesting trends are so that we can then push it back into retail
1: that's fascinating that I'd never thought of it like that that's just so interesting because you hear about companies saying we're going into food retail and I never really appreciated that you know that's the role it's almost like a testing ground in a way that you can really see where the uptake is and where it isn't
2: that's right
0: mm. I'd also probably add that uh, the current Household budget are being really strained with interest rates, mortgage repayments, inflation, all that. No category is immune to this this macro global macro impact we have. I think what's more profound in Australia because of our, you know, um, uh, mortgage repayments issues, and uh, it's putting a lot of pressure on um, value. Looking for value when you shop at the grocer, and um, it's, I think it's fair to say uh, the category, uh, alternative proteins category, has broadly been not a value buy, not a cheap buy. It's 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 been a premium product. Uh, we're talking uh, some imported products in forty dollars a kilogram plus. And uh, when c- consumers and households are when during this uh, economic time, they're looking for how to you know put food on the table and. Every dollar counts more. Uh, I think I have to put a little bit of pressure on the category. Um, coming back to cost again, right? How do we? You can taste great. I think that's table stakes. But can you be affordable? Can you can you make the mar- meet the mark there? And um, I think more work needs to be done. For for multiple subcategories in, in, in plant based, and um, I think that's where that's where the, we ultimately have to get there. But I think it's been brought forward a lot faster give, given given the economic circumstances. So that's a that's a cha- that's a, it's a challenge, but it's it's a massive opportunity because I think if we you need a forcing function like this sometimes to really to get get to where you need to be.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, because you've been in that B two B space, what sort of companies are coming to you? Are they already established in that plant based meat category, or do you do you have discussions with companies that are really new to it and and want to want to come into it?
2: We actually see a variety. So, certainly companies that are already in the space that are looking for a better textural experience that they can work with It's also more affordable. So, we have a lot of opportunities because of that. But I would also say that there's what I saw come out of COVID as we began to normalize about a, a year post uh, lockdowns was that there were a lot of restaurants that knew they needed to have an alternative on their menu. They needed something, at least one, if not two choices, because people would come in, there was always that one person in the party who would want to have a vegan or a vegetarian solution. And so they knew they were losing customers if they didn't have something. But people had tried different solutions, and especially those that were frozen through the cold chain. And they found, because they they had a lot of volatility in their sell-through, because the category is not established yet, they had a lot of food waste and they took on costs that they really couldn't afford. So our solution, because it's ambient and then it actually brought. Back into ready to cook protein on site, it was a great solution for them to really test and learn what kinds of solutions might work in in their stores and what that volume sell-through might be without having any kind of food waste. So that's one area in which we've seen some new customers that thought the timing was right and it was a different product alternative for them. The other category that I think is interesting, I was mentioning a little bit earlier of a lot of traditional animal protein users. Animal protein is an ingredient in a wide variety of different meals that are created from ready meal to aged care homes to hospitals, really across the entire market for the meals that we eat every day. But there has been two things that have been really challenging for people in food service in particular over the last 12 months. Costs have gone up and protein has become unaffordable to the point where they can't pass all those costs on. And there's also actually been supply chain disruption. We don't think about this in Australia because we think we have so much access to protein, but supply chain disruption happens for so many different reasons. We've got fires, we've got floods, we've got avian bird flu, so many challenges for people to manage consistent and steady supply as well as affordability. Because our proteins match animal proteins so well and because they are more affordable, in some cases... We can be up to 50% cheaper than a raw material of animal protein. We see people who are starting to blend, people who are blending our proteins with traditional proteins for both of those reasons, because of cost but also because of secure supply. Mm. And that's a, I mean, I think for what one
1: of those segments that that Griffith University sort of looked at, surely that's a that's actually quite appealing you know that you've you've still got the familiar and there's a bit of the new and you can experiment and get used to it, I'm imagining
2: well, Kim, that's a really interesting point because I think you know one of the things that we've thought about a lot is how binary the experience of animal protein and plant protein has become over the last five years. It's almost become tribal and political when really it's just food. This is just food that we want to eat and we want to have affordable protein that tastes great in formats we know and love that hopefully is also really nutritious for us. But because of the way the category has been built, and I think in, in some respects it had to be built that way, Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods had to make people aware of the the, the low sustainability we have in our food system with animal protein. But the approach that was taken created such a divisiveness that it's really for a huge percentage of our population, probably 70 to 80%, they don't want to eat plant protein. They don't want to change their behavior. They don't want to identify with what they see as a political food. But what's interesting is if you look at sausage, sausages are one of the most popular, ubiquitous food items in Australia and certainly eaten by, I know, one of those segments that Griffith University identified that I like to call uh, Mark the meat eater. (laughs) Somebody who only wants meat. This category had a regulation passed probably in the 70s that said a minimum of 50% or more meat must be included in a sausage for it to be called a sausage. So you can probably guess if it's not meat, if it's not animal meat, it's plant. So that means that we have actually had people eating plant protein for probably 50 years that are identify identify culturally against eating plant protein but what's interesting about that is why did butchers do that butchers did it because there were offcuts that they felt like they could use and create a highly affordable food that was very very tasty and it worked <laughs> <laughs> that's just yeah I, I mean
1: that reminds me of a story of, um, some family friends who went traveling through Spain and she was vegetarian. And then she sort of came back just saying there were so many vegetarian options and they were delicious until someone pointed out to her, yes, they've all been cooked in like animal fat. (laughs) That's just, that's a terrible story. But, um, you know, it's a similar idea in terms of people are eating something that they, you know, have some, some moral high ground against, um, you know but they've been eating it for yeah like 50 years in one of their favorite foods
2: when we go back to the theory of innovation and going from early adopters that are willing to pay an absolute premium for a food that feels and looks really different and they don't have neophobia a fear of new foods and we talk about needing to move into the mainstream I think we're going to have to consider very different mechanisms to bring products to market and it needs to be a combination of how we use various different technologies to create great tasting, nutritious, affordable proteins, but just as much on the psychology of the consumer, how we segment, package and market and message out to those consumers. Yeah. So, what's next?
1: What's next for Harvest Bay? You guys are you know changing the world? So, uh, <laughs> are you coming? Are you going to develop some um, some B two C products, or are you going to stay sort of really focused on the B two B
2: market? Well, the B two B market is the most important to us. That's where our, our- most of our customers reside today. And we're really excited to enable the broader market because again, we don't think food is a winner take all. We think we need a lot of people participating and engaging in getting customers excited about plant protein on their plate. Um, But we have forayed into the B2C space. And in fact, we've just launched a range of our shelf stable proteins that are now available on Woolworth's online platform, Healthy Life. So anyone who's interested in giving it a try, it's an ambient kit that is prepared for different types of meat analogs that you can brine back in and cook at home in uh, whatever meal you're you're interested in.
1: Oh, that's well, that's a really exciting development. Uh, and what about the um, what about plant based meat in general? What where where are you seeing that? Do you think more people are coming across that chasm, or?
2: you know, is this going to be a
1: bit of a long slog?
2: I think there's a lot more work to be done. I, I think if you look at the data, look at consumer research in the data, what we would find in, and I'll, I'll make this specific to Western countries, so Australia, Europe, you know, the United States, because I do think it's quite different when you start looking at um, other, other countries. In those countries, it is clear that a significant percentage of people would like to reduce their meat intake. So that's good. There's also mixed awareness of the sustainability concerns in animal protein. So to be able to extend, you know, from forty percent of the population who wants to reduce to sixty or seventy percent, we need more awareness about that. Um, And but in terms of vegan and vegetarian consumption, we only see, you know, here in Australia, it's two percent vegan, it's five percent vegetarian. It's probably not above ten percent in the United States or in in Europe. We do see some great traction in Europe with a wide variety of choices, more solutions that are in market, and especially as affordability improves. However, there is still probably 60 to 70% of the population that doesn't seem to really want to eat plant-based meat. So I do think whether it's through awareness and shifting perceptions, Or through product innovation, and going back to that that sausage concept, um, how will we reach out to that sixty percent, which is where we really start to make a significant change on the sustainability of our food system? Well,
1: what do you think about
2: that, Grant? That's like a pocket, just I don't know, a pocket guide to
1: the current landscape of um, of plant based meat, and one of the industry leaders, really.
0: It's fascinating. And as I've said on a number of times before with this show, the future that was written in the 50s and the science fiction I was reading in the 70s (laughs) and 80s is now the reality here in the 2020s. (laughs) So quite fascinating.
1: Um, Thank you, you two, for sharing your knowledge and your passion. And it's been wonderful following you since, you know, I think the first article we wrote about you guys in 2020. So keep that progress. It's really exciting to watch. Thanks, Kim.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Christy. Thanks, Alfred. And of course, thanks, Kim. And thanks to our audience for joining us today. Don't forget, if you enjoyed what you've heard, you can like us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher as this helps others discover our show. We'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative discussion. But until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've
2: been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast,
0: Southern Skies Media.